You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here. That's what you've earned here tonight. Forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms. And remember what got you here. If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says, at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch because we know when we add up all those inches, that, that, that's going to make the f***ing difference between winning and losing. It's down to the wire with, with, with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Oh, on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, this is Down to the Wire. I'm your host, Emma Marks. My co-host, the great Speedy PD. As you know, you can follow us by going to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. You can search us on all our social media platforms. Guys, our app will be out in a couple of weeks. Actually, it is on Android. It will be on iOS in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be really, really great to get all our content, our blogs, our stories. You can watch our shows live on our app. And you can listen to us while you're driving home. So it is a great app. It's free. And we want everybody to download it. So once it's out on iOS and once it's out on Android fully, I'm looking forward for all you guys to download it and actually be interactive with us as well. Um, there was so much going on this weekend. Everybody is, everybody's going to say, well, the sports world, there's nothing going on in the sports world. Well, I beg to differ. And the one big story right now going on in the sports world is the last dance, the 98 Bulls, uh, the story behind the 98 Bulls team. And we're going to get into that first. But before we do that, we're also going to talk about later on today, we're going to go into, well, later on in the show, we're going to talk about the virtual NFL draft. Will it change team strategy moving forward this season? So we will get into that a little bit later. We're also going to get into how would a delay season affect the Red Sox punishment now that the commissioner has said he will not release the ruling till the season start. So... That's going to be an interesting topic that we're going to get into a little bit later in the show, so stay tuned for that. And as you guys know, at 6.30, we will be speaking to the voice of the Oakland A's, uh, Roxy Bernstein. And at 7.30, we will be speaking to the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Freed. So I'm looking forward to this, Speedy. How about you? Yeah, definitely looking forward to, forward to it. I enjoyed watching The Last Dance as well. I saw bits and pieces of what I did see, and... Excited for the show. We're going to have a lot of, of good variety today. Absolutely. And as you know, at 630, we're going to have Roxy on. So um, I want to get into this Last Dance uh, two-part episode that we saw yesterday on ESPN. And I didn't get to watch it live. A lot of people were telling me uh, that it was great. It, it was very, very, very well directed. Uh, there was so much going on in these two episodes. There were only our episodes. So... I had the opportunity after I came home from work today to watch the episodes. It was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and you, you look at the direction they were going with this documentary. And a lot of people are going to say, well, you're going to look at particular 
people in this documentary, guys like Jerry Krause, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, and you're going to look at them completely different. Or maybe you're going to just realize who they are as people behind closed doors. Now, we all know who Phil Jackson is. Phil Jackson is a guy that is a Karma Sutra guy who likes to meditate. And uh, this is a guy that is one of the greatest minds, basketball minds we have ever seen. The triangle offense uh, really came from the New York Knicks teams in the 70s. And he really transitioned the game with guys like Michael Jordan. And Scottie Pippen. And Dennis Rodman. And Shaquille O'Neal. And Kobe Bryant. He changed the game. With his style implemented into the NBA game. But this story. The 98 Bulls. Really should have never happened. And if you watched the documentary. The first two episodes. You could see that Jerry Krause wanted to completely terminate this team. He wanted to take apart this team. He no longer wanted Phil Jackson as the head coach. Obviously, he was going to keep Michael Jordan there. But Scottie Pippen, he wanted to trade. Dennis Rodman was on his way out because of his craziness <laughs> on and off the, uh, off the court. Still today. And, and you look at the players like uh, Weatherton and, and – and, uh, I'm not Paxson. I'm sorry. Steve Kerr and Tony Kukoc. You watch the growth of this team. And really, I was alive to watch the success of the Chicago Bulls of the late 80s and early 90s and mid-90s. And Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. I don't want to hear about Bill Russell. I don't want to hear about Walt Chamberlain. Uh, I'm sorry, Walt Chamberlain. I don't want to hear about Walt Frazier or Oscar Robinson. Or any of the guys in the NBA, including LeBron James. The greatest basketball player to ever play the game is Michael Jordan. But even with greatness, you see the backlash of who Michael Jordan was. Not only was he a charismatic guy on and off the the court. This guy wanted to win at all costs. That's who he was. He didn't care if he was going to put down every single player on his team. If they weren't going to play hard, he was going to push them to play hard. And if they weren't going to play hard, and they're not showing that they could play hard, he would make sure that the coach sits in and plays the other guy on the bench, even if you don't even know who the hell he is. Michael Jordan was a determined athlete. He's When, when you look at some of the greatest athletes to ever play professional sports, Muhammad Ali, He had something about him that nobody can compete with. Nobody. Fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. He always had that terminology that when he was standing in front of his opponent, he would scare him before he walked in the ring. He knew he was going to lose before he walked in the ring. You talk about Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky was one of the quietest athletes, great athletes of all time. But Wayne Gretzky was the greatest hockey player in people's eyes to ever play the game. And anybody that has ever met Wayne Gretzky will tell you he doesn't have much to say. And he's not one of those guys that you can get into a full full conversation with. He's not that type of person. Michael Jordan was a guy 
that would speak to the press. He wouldn't back up on anything he's ever said. When he would go up there after he wins his first championship all the way to his sixth championship, Michael Jordan was straightforward from top to bottom on what he had to say. And he said in 97, if Phil Jackson doesn't come back, I'm not coming back. He said that in 97 before this documentary even started in episode one. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. That's interesting. They gave Phil Jackson a short leash. Jerry Krause and, and Phil Jackson at the end of both these guys' Chicago Bulls careers. And Jerry Krause wasn't too far after Phil Jackson. Jerry Krause ruined the dynasty of the Chicago Bulls. He built the dynasty. He was the one that took over for Rob Thorne. He, the last gift he gave to the Chicago Bulls was Michael Jordan. Jerry Krause took over, and he built around Michael Jordan. Bringing in Scottie Pippen after Seattle drafted him. And making the trade at the, at the draft and bringing Scottie Pippen in to be his Robin from Batman and Michael Jordan. Then in the, the mid-90s, bringing in Dennis Rodman to help them win the back-to-back-to-back years in 96, 97, and 98. Jerry Krause built this team, but what he built, he took apart. And he made sure he took it apart. Very suddenly, too. This team probably could have won at least two more titles. Definitely in 99, especially in the, uh, the year of um, the half a season when the strike came out in 99. And everybody remembers... The NBA Finals, it was the Knicks versus the, the San Antonio Spurs. The Knicks is the eighth seed. <laughs> and San Antonio swept the New York Knicks. But what happens if the Knicks were the Chicago Bulls? The 98, 97, and 96 Chicago Bulls. Do the San Antonio, the young San Antonio Spurs beat the veteran, top-heavy with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen Chicago Bulls? I don't think so. I don't. That's a lot of size and a lot of great defense in that matchup. They were to play each other. It would have been interesting. I think David Robinson was the only old guy on that Spurs team. And that was David Robinson's last year after he won a championship. Oh, I thought he won two. Okay. No, he won one. Oh, okay. I, I'll tell you this. You go back in time and you compare the Chicago Bulls to any team. Of all time. In, in any sport. The 90s Chicago Bulls. Are probably a top three. Out of every single sport. Yeah I was going to say. You probably have the 1927 Yankees. That's probably one of them. I don't know. Who would it be for football? Probably one of the Steelers teams. I the would Green imagine. Bay Packers. You think, which, well, I'm not talking about Lombardi the Super Bowls. One when, of the Lombardi teams. Yeah when they think? won like okay. five championships. In like seven years. Oh I think you're referring to an individual year. Okay. Oh I'm talking about how dominant they were. Oh yeah. Alright. The Green Bay Packers. The Lombardi Green Bay Packers. And even the Patriots. Of this era. You're talking about some of the greatest. You know winning. When it comes to professional sports. Mm. But when you watch this 
first episode, really going into the second episode, they treated Scottie Pippen like a piece of garbage. Scottie Pippen, who was one of the top ten players in the NBA, at the time with Larry Bird and still Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson and Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing and Clyde Drexler and all the great players we saw in the 90s, Scottie Pippen was amongst the best in the top ten of the NBA. And this guy was one of the, one of the least paid players in all of the league. I didn't know that either. That's crazy. That would never happen today. This is a man that was also, he barely was a walk-on on a Division II basketball team. And nobody thought he was going to be the fifth pick in the draft and drafted by the Seattle Supersonics, which the Chicago Bulls wanted to move up and get him. And somehow, Jerry Krause found a way to make the trade in the middle of the draft, after he was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics, could you imagine? And could you imagine what the league would have transitioned in if Scottie Pippen went to Seattle and not to Chicago? They, the Chicago and Seattle played each other in the finals too. You wonder if that could have altered that series. I forget, it was a '93 or '95, one of those years. That could have altered that whole series, and they would have a title too. And as as you look at it, before Michael Jordan left for a year and a half and retired to go and play baseball because of the death of the death uh, the death of his father, Michael Jordan and the uh, and the Chicago Bulls could have won instead of six championships in a row. They could have won eight. They probably could have won ten if you think about it. Because the two years that he missed, that if he played, they would have never lost against the, the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals. They would have never lost against Orlando. And who knows what would have happened against them and the Rockets. Nobody would have known. And, and if you remember that draft, when, when Michael Jordan was drafted, Hakeem Olajuwon was in the same draft. Number one pick. And they were talking about it all over radio today. Were the Rockets wrong for drafting Hakeem Olajuwon over Michael Jordan? No, I don't think so at that time because he was also a better college player than Michael Jordan was, and he all he played at Houston, so it's a, a guy they fans already loved. So you can't go wrong for that. It just again, Jordan was greater. Olajuwon's one of the best big men of all time, so it's not that regrettable either. Nobody's saying that. At least they're not. At least they're not the number two pick. It's it's a question. <laughs> it's a question that the only team that can answer that is the Houston Rockets. Not me, not you, or anybody can answer that. Because if they had Michael Jordan, they might have won more championships. They might have won all six. They, they might have won seven or eight championships instead of two. And they only won their two titles the two years that Michael Jordan wasn't in the league. I'll never know. But what Michael Jordan gave to the league was the transition of an athletic Really unbelievably athletic guy that not can not only could jam, but he can fly. He brought basketball to a whole nother level. Competitive nature of who he was as an athlete. Nobody can compare themselves at that competitive nature except maybe Phil Jackson or Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, and I, I will give Kobe Bryant a lot of credit on this. His understanding of winning and wanting to win had the same fierce attitude 
as Michael Jordan did on the basketball court every time he stepped on the court. Michael Jordan played like it was his last game every day. He would practice like it was his last day playing the game of basketball. And I was talking to Speedy before we even started the show. I said, Michael Jordan really only hurt himself for a significant amount of time his second year of his NBA career. After his rookie of the year season, he missed 60-some-odd games. He was durable in college, too. After that, Michael Jordan didn't miss anything, even when he had the flu in the playoffs and what he mm-hmm. did in the, in the playoffs. Michael Jordan was on a whole nother level. And what you're seeing right now in the last dance, the 98 Bulls, the last time, and, and, and the whole story and, and the whole name of this documentary came from Phil Jackson. Because the 98 season, he named that season the last dance. And sometimes that's something that could put pressure on a team, extra pressure to be able to do it. But they wrote it comfortably and made it work for another year. Even with, again, egos clashing with Pippen getting mad at the organization with Rodman. We talked about that earlier. Who knows what he's thinking at any moment. And some, a lot of those role players they brought in. A lot of times that could apply pressure on teams, but it didn't get to them. And they were able to finish that out. And watching in the first two episodes, you really don't see as much as you want to see. And I want to watch all the episodes straight through. I don't want to watch one episode here, one episode there. They're giving two episodes every single Sunday. And they were supposed to start this in June. They weren't doing it in April. But because of everything going on in uh, the world and COVID-19 and really keeping people in their house, they want to give something to the people for something Sports like for people to you know really to watch and, and connect. Know, with. And you know it's going to get a ton of ratings right Absolutely. now. Absolutely has. <laughs> but to me right now, what you're seeing is is something that maybe you young people, including you, Speedy, you weren't alive in. Nope. Well, you were alive in '98, but you were a kid. You didn't even right. know what the Chicago Bulls were. Nope. At the age, how old were you? Three? three? Three years old. I had no idea who the Chicago Bulls were. I was alive in 98. And I was, I think I was 16 or 17 years old in the 98 Bulls season. I, no, no, I was 14 or 15. Because I graduated in 2000. It was 98. I graduated at 18. I was 16 years old when the 98 Bulls were at the top of the peak of their games. The, when the Bulls were at the top peak. And I remember before the season started, nobody was sure, was sure if Scottie Pippen was going to come back. Nobody was sure that Michael Jordan was going to come back if Phil Jackson wasn't going to get that one-year extension for $6 million. And by the way, when he got that ex- extension, he went into Jerry Krause's office, and Jerry Krause said, this is your last hurrah. This is your last right. season. And it's interesting because they never brought up if mindsets ever changed with that because maybe they were thinking – okay, this is your last hurrah, maybe expecting it to drop off a little bit or maybe expecting it to be just one glorious thing. But they never explained if any players or even Phil Jackson or, any again, any of the egos, any of that changed, even, even if it was Krause. And it's interesting if they were sticking to that mentality the whole way or if anything thought, oh, are we going to just stop here or are we going to keep going with that? I know if Pippen, obviously he was underpaid for a while, so he wanted the money, but... But the other ones, too, you wonder if they wanted to keep going on like that. They didn't mention that, but I'm sure a lot of players were thinking it, too. As you guys know, I'm not a very big Stephen A. Smith fan, but he knew the Chicago Bulls. He was very close to the organization and Michael Jordan at the time of the 98 season. And 
On uh, what, what's what's the show called? First again? take. I I don't watch ESPN anymore, so I I don't know the show. But first take with Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith. He said this about Jerry Krause. Any part of you that feels bad for Jerry Krause? No, it is not. Um, I know that he was ridiculed, and I certainly don't wish that upon anybody. Um, but I, I appreciate the fact that while people recognize and respect. Um, his 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 skills as a general manager. Um, they also reminded everybody he brought it on himself, and I think that this is the thing. The only person he didn't bring in was MJ, so you would think that would be the only person he had a problem with because outside of MJ, you could take credit for almost everything there. Now, obviously, you couldn't win without MJ. But nevertheless, MJ had to appreciate all the pieces that you put around him in order to facilitate his level of success throughout his illustrious career. But he alienated MJ. But then he also alienated Scottie Pippen and others with some of the decisions that he was willing to make. Well, that's uh, Stephen A. Smith's a little compressed information that he wanted to give to everybody on what he thought Jerry Krause was as a GM for the Chicago Bulls in the 98 season of the Chicago Bulls. Really, throughout the throughout Michael Jordan's career with Chicago and the Chicago Bulls, he's had his run-in with Jerry Krause. And if you watch the first episode, you can see that Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, and Phil Jackson – did not respect Jerry Krause. They made fun of him because he was a midget. He was fat. Michael Jordan made fun of his his weight quite a few times in the documentary. So you could see that Michael Jordan did not have any respect for Jerry Krause. But as a GM and as a guy that really constructed this team, he was the mastermind of these Bulls teams. You so he was say, strategic but stubborn, stubborn in a sense. Well, too, because, he, liked. because he never got the credit. Like Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman got over the years. Even Tony Kukoc had more respect by the fans than Jerry Krause did. The fans did not like Jerry Krause because you could see that nobody had respect for him. And the fans saw that guys like Scottie Pippen, their best players, and Michael Jordan couldn't stand the man. So why would the fans even give him the respect that he deserved on right. really constructing this team the way he did. Well, now it's interesting because it's interesting the player relationships with Kraus were definitely negative, and you could tell that. But again, usually that's the case anyway, isn't it? The players that get all the credit before the GM anyway. Like a lot of times with basketball, especially, it's the players first. Sometimes it's the great coaches, Greg Popovich, Pat Riley, Red Auerbach back in his day. They get the credit too, but again, the GMs, they're never brought up like that anyway. So just very interesting. It's that negative light for somebody like Krause too, especially for the Bulls who, again, we saw in the documentary. And if you saw the documentary, they were pretty bad before that. And since then have been up and down until Michael Jordan, until Michael Jordan, right? Until 84, they were a pretty bad team. And then after that, they've been, they've had phases of good basketball, but not none that won championships, like in nowhere near a dynasty. No. And that changed everything when Michael Jordan was drafted and, and Jerry Krause will always be looked at was the guy that didn't draft Michael Jordan. He didn't draft Michael Jordan. After Michael Jordan, Rob Thorne stepped down. He, he, he was relieved for his position, and Jerry Krause took over for the team and then reconstructed this team to build it around Michael Jordan, who was the best basketball player in the NBA for almost 15 years. Yeah.
But you you look at all the arguments from all different players. You you saw Michael Jordan. You saw Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson. You saw glimpses and clips of Jerry Krause who can't defend himself because he's no longer alive. He can't defend himself now that this documentary has hit you know the TV, the airwaves, and everything. Now everything is looked at him as a frown, as a, as a, not only as a GM but as a person. People and there are people that have said that Jerry Krause over the years was one of the nicest people, one of the nicest guys in the business, one of the nicest GMs in the NBA. But because Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Phil Jackson didn't respect him because he didn't want to pay Scottie Pippen, and Michael Jordan wanted to be everything and anything that this team was because he was the team, and he was the Bulls organization, and he knew that if he had the fans backing him up, there's no GM, no owner, no anybody that's going to stop him. And Michael Jordan was that big, not only in the NBA, but in the world. As you can see, when he was in France in episode one, it was like the Beatles were in France. That's the difference when you have a superstar player like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, his, his helicopter crash, he died this year. May he rest in peace. That was the talk of the Super Bowl. In Miami, no matter how big the Super Bowl was, the 49ers versus the Kansas City Chiefs, every single story came out with Kobe Bryant. Because Kobe Bryant was bigger than the Super Bowl. Michael Jordan was bigger than basketball. And you're going to see this as we move forward. As he plays the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s. And he, he couldn't get over the hump. And then when Scotty came into the picture. And Phil Jackson came into the picture. It changed everything. That was a great documentary too with the Pistons. I love that one. 30 for 30. <laughs> so Michael Jordan transitioned the game. Not only as a guy that glided. And everybody said this guy could fly. And he made movies like Space Jam and and he thought he can go and play professional baseball and leave basketball and become a superstar baseball player. He wasn't that type of athlete. But as far as the basketball court is concerned, there was nobody, never and ever will be Michael Jordan. When we come back, our first guest, ladies and gentlemen, yes, the voice of the Oakland Athletics, Mr. Roxy Bernstein here on Down to the Wire. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, 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 you're listening to Down to the Wire on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And... And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Down to the Wire. As you know, you can call us at 631-965-4990. Well, guys, we've been waiting for this guy. I've been waiting all week to interview this particular guy. We are going to talk to the voice of the Oakland Athletics and college football and basketball play-by-play analyst from ESPN, Mr. Roxy Bernstein. What's going on, Roxy? Good afternoon. How you doing? 
I'm good, my friend. Uh, everything going on in the world and the transition of trying to get in and out of my house and going to the food market and trying to stay safe. How about you and your family? How is uh, everything going on? How is everything going over there with your, you and your family with COVID-19? Well, we're all safe. We're all healthy, which is a good thing. And uh, an extended break, though, for me, which I'm not used to having. This is the longest stretch that I've ever been home before i you know i've been i've been home since uh march 12th when i came back i was at the pac-12 tournament in vegas and i was supposed to go do the big west semis and championship but i came back after we played the first day and then everything got shut down and i've been home and on lockdown ever since and uh it, it's you know, look, we're fortunate, we're healthy, we're safe, which is good. But at some point, you know, we'd like to get back to work. And when you make your living calling games, uh, you, you'd like to get back to that. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get there at some point. But in the meantime, we all got to be smart. And uh, hopefully everybody can stay as safe as possible out there and healthy as possible. Well, I have a very unique name. My name is Errol. I was named after Errol Flynn. I was wondering, where did you get your name, Roxy? <laughs> I got it's a nickname. I've had the nickname ever since before I was born, and it just stuck. Uh, you got yours, Farrell Flynn. I got mine from uh, my my dad's golf caddy. My dad had a caddy whose name was Roxy, and this was going back to uh, he he was a semi pro, could have turned pro prop maybe. Uh, as a golfer, but and my mom was about six or seven months pregnant with me. She gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, <laughs> like three o'clock in the morning, and my dad, half asleep, kind of rolls over, and you know maybe he's thinking that oh, over that putty missed on sixteen, but he, hey, hey, Roxy, where are you going? And my mom's like, who's Roxy? And it just stuck from that point on. Even though I'm my given name is Alan, I've never gone by it even growing up as a kid through elementary school middle school high school whatever it's, i've always been roxy and that's uh it's stuck and i'm i'm thankful for it because it, it clearly <laughs> is a lot different than anybody else that's for sure well i know you're the voice of the oakland athletics but i want you to grade rob manford's off season with the whole Houston Astros scandal all the way to handling the COVID-19. How would you grade Rob Manford's offseason? Well, let's start with the Astros <laughs> situation. Let's talk some baseball. Okay. Um, I personally think he could have done more. Uh, look, he, he thought he hit them with a significant punishment, and the punishment will hurt them. There's no doubt. When you're losing draft picks like they are, and they're also getting fined, $5 million as an organization. Um, Jeff Luno, A.J. Hinch lose their jobs as a part of it. But I think more could have been done for Major League Baseball. I think the punishment should have been harsher. Uh, uh, look, I don't know if vacating the World Series title was on the table or not. I don't know how realistic or practical that could have been. But I, I do feel the punishment could have been harsher for Major League Baseball. Um, and I'm anxious to see once we resume and get back to baseball, what's the reaction going to be to the Houston Astros? And hopefully when uh, everything, we can get some return to some semblance of normalcy, we'll have baseball again and we'll have crowds and fans and ballparks and, and stadiums and arenas. 
what is the fan reaction going to be toward the Houston Astros? And we saw a glimpse of it during spring training, but uh, will it still be as forceful from the fans? Look, I I know, for example, when they come to Oakland or they go to New York, that there is going to be some animosity from the crowd. But what's the general consensus going to be, considering what our country has gone through and Will, will time have passed? Will there be the sympathy factor just because of what everybody's dealing with? Uh, I'm anxious to see that, but let's face it, we're all hoping to get back to some semblance of normalcy, and we want to see games being played, and and uh, we really just we want to resume life as normal as possible. Again, we want our sports back. Roxy, I've always said that the Astros didn't get punished as hard because they were waiting to see on what the Red Sox were going to happen, and they're scandal is still pending. Do you think it's possible we could see more handed down to the Astros once we know what happens to the Red Sox? I I find it difficult that that could be the case just because I think Rob Manford and, and baseball has already ruled and they've done the investigation and the lengthy report that's come out. I'm just not sure there was any more information. Look, if there was something new that came out, then I could see a more significant punishment going in the direction of the Astros. But unless something new comes out or more information or there was other cheating that was taking place, I, I don't see them adding on to the punishment. Um, we'll, we'll see what the fallout is for the Red Sox when this comes to light and Major League Baseball responds to them. But I just think that Major League Baseball already ruled and a precedent has been set, and I don't think they can go back to it. Like, for example, I don't necessarily think, unless unless the players lied, unless they lied to Major League Baseball and lied to the investigation, then I could see something else going on. Because the players are granted immunity for Major League Baseball to, to get the information. They couldn't get the info they needed. They couldn't get the goods on the Astros without the players talking. And, look, I feel terrible for A.J. Hinch and that he lost his job in this and that he was not necessarily complicit, but at the same time, he didn't shut it down. Um, And the players were not going to get punished. Should the Astros players, should Altuve, should Bregman, should they all get punished? everybody's got their opinion, but I get where the MLB investigation is coming from is they needed to get information out of them to be able to punish the Astros organization. And they couldn't do without the players opening up and giving them uh, the freedom to speak without punishment. So uh, I do get a sense that they were truthful and honest, but if it comes down to that there were some lying and shenanigans go involved, then I could see something else handed out the Astros' way. But Major League Baseball had to grant them immunity to get the information, and I, I don't think the players' union would sit idly if MLB wanted to punish the players even more. We are talking to the voice of the Oakland Athletics, Mr. Roxy Bernstein. Roxy, do you think baseball moving towards the electronic umpires is going to speed up the game or change the game completely? I think it'll change the game. I don't know if it necessarily will speed up the game, but there will be a change because you'll get a more uniform and consistent strike zone as opposed to, look, each individual umpire has a way they call the game, and their strike zone may differ. For, for example, 
you know, one umpire strikes on, he may be a low strike umpire. Another one is a high guy or another guy, you know, gives you the inside, but not the outside corner. You'll see a more uniform strike zone if that's the case. Will it speed up the game? I, I don't think so because I think for the most part the umps do a really good job and are consistent. And the pitchers know that going in. They have an understanding of how the game is going to be called. So I, I don't necessarily think it will speed up the game. You'll you get a more uniform strike zone, but I, I don't necessarily know how that would impact the timing of a game and speed everything up. How about the A's, the off-season acquisitions? Really, do they have a fighting chance right now in that division with all the acquisitions from all the other teams in that division? Oh, I, I think so. I think the A's feel really good about their team going in. When they have the core coming back with Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Marcus Simeon, Ramon Laureano, the, the group is coming back, and these young up-and-coming players that the A's have, we saw glimpses of it last year with guys like Sean Murphy as the catcher, uh, with Jesus Lazardo and A.J. Puck. Uh, you're going to have a healthy Sean Manaya. I think the A's feel really good about their pitching, uh, and they're starting pitching with all these young arms. And then you also and you have a veteran presence like Mike Fires. Then the bullpen with Liam Hendricks emerging as one of the elite closers last year, just a phenomenal season that he had. And the pieces in the bullpen to support him, hopefully a bounce back from Lou Trevino, uh, that they feel really good about the group they had coming in. They didn't have to tinker all that much. Okay, you bring in, you know, uh, you make a trade, get Austin Allen to be a backup catcher coming over from the Padres, and you, you sign or you make a deal to get Tony Kemp to be a utility guy. I think the only real question mark for the A's is second base. And who's going to be the starter there with a couple of guys uh, that are prospects in the system, like Franklin Barreto, Jorge Mateo. Does Kemp get a chance to start at that position? Will Chad Pinder get a look? I, that, to me, is the real only job that was on the line for the A's. And when you have as few question marks as they do going into the season, I think that's a really good thing. Roxy, you brought up the prospects, uh, Lazardo, Murphy, and Puck. They're all top 60 prospects right now. How do you think the shortened season could affect their development as a whole with the wacky formation of what MLB could be? Well, I don't necessarily it'll affect them as much as it would some of the other guys in the system, like uh, James Caprillion or Dalton Jeffries or some of these guys that are coming up through the pipeline for the A's. At least Murphy and Puck and Lazardo, they got a taste of it last year. So it's not going to be just eye-popping. All of a sudden, they step in to a major league game for the first time. They, they got their feet wet last year, and they had a taste of success. So I, I think it only helps them. But my question is, as we proceed, what's going to happen with the minor leagues and, and with their player development? And what's going to happen, for example, I think, okay, the higher, the triple-A, the double-A level may get a little bit more attention, but what's going to happen to all the single-A prospects and players down the road that we're not going to see for another two, three years? And I, I, that's still to be determined in how things proceed, but with the front-line prospects the A's have, they're major league ready, so I don't think it's as much uh, an issue for them as it is for maybe some of the players that are two, three years away. We are talking to the voice of the Oakland Athletics, Roxy Bernstein. Roxy, does cancel? I want to get into a little NCAA basketball. Uh, does the cancellation of the NCAA tournament discourage top high school prospects to go and play college ball? 
I don't think necessarily. And look, we're only talking about a handful of potential prospects, right? It's not like we're talking about 20 to 30 people that could have this option. You're talking about a handful of people. It does affect the game, sure. And the talent, okay, maybe it takes a little bit of a hit. But, but look at in the grand scheme of things. College basketball is going to survive. College basketball's got the fan base, it's got the television uh, eyeballs and the revenue streams. Where all of a sudden, okay, if you're this prospect and you sign on to go play in the G League, you're going to uh, you're going to places like Grand Rapids and Fargo and uh, Rio Grande Valley, Santa Cruz, California. Is this where you really want to go with? your basketball and you're not going to be seen. It's not like, okay, people are going to flock to see the minor leagues in basketball. It's just not going to happen where you have the impact of college basketball. will still have a significant impact and still be, uh, the great fan escape that we have. And come March madness, the eyeballs, it's all still going to be there. It just, maybe there's a couple names that we're not going to see, but it, it, when you look at it, it's realistically, it's only a handful of guys that can make this decision. And we've seen some people go overseas, like, okay, LeAngelo Ball is done right now, or R.J. Hampton has done. But it's only, again, a handful of people that have that option, will have that uh, cachet to, to be able to get the kind of paydays that the G League is talking about. The other end of this March Madness cancellation has been the transfer portal has been very active, and now the transfer portal is instant impact. You don't have to sit for a year. Where do you stand on that change that the NCAA has made? Well, we we see it get bigger and bigger each year with a number of transfers, and it seems like there's like three or four guys at every school now. We're talking about is either transfers, potential transfers, grad transfers. Here's if I was, let's say, the czar of college basketball, <laughs> this is what I would do. And look, I'm not necessarily saying discourage kids from going. But if I was in charge, and the only people to me that should be given immediate eligibility, the grad transfer, I'm all for it, right? We're applauding the student athlete for taking care of business in the classroom. If they want to have that last year and go somewhere else to play, after they already had that degree in hand, that could be that, that carrot at the end of the line to give them that opportunity. I'm all for it for them. That's fine. Um, if a school, for example, fires their coach, or there is a coaching change for whatever reason, I'm all for giving them immediate eligibility if they want to leave a transfer to a different situation. But when it comes to just transferring the sake of transferring or to find a better situation for me, or we've seen so many people use the excuse of the, of the sick family member, and I'm not poking light at that because there are real hardships that families are going through with some illnesses and some life-threatening illnesses, and I'm not trying to uh, talk down upon those. But for me, I would make it that if you're transferring for, you know, for whatever reason, you sit out a year unless there's a coaching change or you're a grad transfer, then I feel you can get some immediate eligibility. What was your thoughts on the last dance, the Chicago Bulls story of the 98 championship team? I found it fascinating last night. The first two hours, 
look, we all want to see it right now, right? We want three and four. We want yep. to things keep rolling out. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stories we were familiar with, but just pulling back the curtain on it all and some of the other stories that we weren't necessarily privy to were fascinating. You know, the dynamic and how much you didn't realize where that hatred stemmed from between Michael Jordan and management. And it went back all the way to early in his career, and he, and he had to carry that grudge with him throughout his career, <laughs> and this is what he dealt with on top of being the greatest player that we've ever seen. So it is pretty remarkable that the off-the-floor issues and, the, and what he had to deal with on top of being laser-focused and, and, and trying to win. And it, it just, I think it brought back a lot of great memories, but at the same time, it opened up some new stories, and it could really shed light on the stories from the past and give them more context than we had. Let's shift now to college football. There's been talk with athletic directors of expanding the college football playoff. We've heard eight teams, 16 teams, six teams, 12 teams. We've heard a bunch of different things. Where do you stand on expanding, and if so, how many teams do you think would be best? I think eight would be good. I've always subscribed to the theory, guys, that you should – Give credence and you should honor the regular season champs from the power conferences. So you win the power five conference, they should be rewarded. So, for example, the winner of the Pac-12, the winner of the Big 12, the SEC, the Big 10, the ACC, those conference winners get automatic bids of the five of the eight. And then the other three for at-larges, whether it's for a Notre Dame or a BYU, an independent, whether it's for a second-place team from a power conference, I'm all for that. So, But I've always really valued the conference championship, and I do feel that I've always felt comfortable with eight. I know the FCS does 16, but if you did an eight-team tournament with the five conference champions and three others at largest, I think that would be the scenario that I would really go for. Is just uh, That's the one I've always subscribed to would be the best. Uh, format for uh, for college football to proceed. We are speaking to the great, yes, the great play-by-play man for the Oakland Athletics, Roxy Bernstein. Roxy, my last question. What are your thoughts with this virtual drafting with the NFL, and what player stands out right now coming from college that you think could be a game-changer right out, right out, of, right out of the pack? Well, let, let's start with the game-changer. Chase Young appears to be the best player in this draft right? The, the highest ceiling, the potential with him. And look, we all know the quarterback is the number one position and the most important position on the football field. But the way that the NFL game has evolved, that the pass rusher, the edge rusher now appears to be the number two position of importance in the league. So here is an opportunity. I think he's the game changer. Um, there's a lot of great wide receivers. When you look at this draft, I, I think it's a receiver-heavy draft. Um, there's going to be some other great storylines as we head into Thursday and, and the weekend with the draft. And For example, the one that's the, maybe the most intriguing to me is the Tua Tonga-Vailoa situation. And where is he going to go? Because of the injuries and the teams can't examine him with their doctors and they're just going to have to take the medical reports other people, they can't work them out, there's no pro days. How is that going to affect Tonga Vailoa? And if I'm a team that is, I'm in a win-now mode, if I'm, let's say, a Matt Patricia in Detroit, or if I'm a GM who's on the hot seat, I might shy away from that just because you can't take the risk at this point. 
So maybe he falls a little bit. He's a guy to keep an eye on as far as how the draft proceeds and how things shake out. But as far as drafting remotely, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens if there's an IT problem, an internet <laughs> problem for you know a GM of a team? How is that going to impact the draft? Will they pause and stop the draft because somebody can't get online? It's going to be really fascinating to watch this play out Thursday just because of uh, how things are going to shape up in this year's draft where it's going to be so different than we're, than we're used to seeing. You broadcast a lot of Pac-12 football. Who are some sleeper names that maybe aren't on anyone's horizon that you think could be really good players in the NFL and break through? Well, I mean, the, the, certainly people are familiar with Justin Herbert, who's going to go very high in the draft. Love him. You know, Austin Jackson, the offensive lineman at USC. There's some names, and then a couple of receivers that are uh, really seem to be some hot names. Brandon Ayuk from Arizona State is one of them. Um, and also with LaVisca Chenault from Colorado. A couple of names that are intriguing to me are uh, when you look at uh, Ashton Davis, the safety from Cal with his speed and athleticism. Uh, I think it really will translate well to the NFL, and I think he's a guy to keep an eye on. Hunter Bryant, the tight end at Washington, to me is a fantastic uh, pass-receiving tight end, which really seems to be – uh, one of the positions that is sought after in, in the NFL these days. Those are two guys to me to keep an eye on when you look at how this draft is going to play out. Um, you look at the defensive linemen from Utah, like Ifotu, Bradley, and I, they could be some popular names. Uh, Jalen Johnson, the corner from Utah, where the, the youths have had a tremendous defense this year. Uh, Justin Blackman, who is the safety. So the, I, I think they're, you're loaded with talent from the Pac-12, maybe not at the top of the draft in terms of, okay, yes, Herbert will go high, but I think there's some real depth and some real numbers from the, the Conference of Champions, as we call it, as the draft will unfold coming up on Thursday and into the weekend. Roxy, why don't you tell the fans how they can find you on social media, my friends? They can follow me on Twitter at Roxy Bernstein, all one word, R-O-X-Y-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. That's the best place to find me, and I don't know when they'll see me on TV in the near future or hear me on the radio because we're all waiting for games to come back and and that opportunity to head out to stadiums, arenas, and the ballparks, and hopefully at some point we get back there sooner than later, but most importantly, hopefully everybody stays safe and healthy out there. Roxy, thank you for coming on with us. You got it, guys. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Roxy Bernstein, the voice of the Oakland Athletics. Great interview. Really, really good interview. We went from basketball to college basketball to baseball to hockey to everything what we we, we didn't go into hockey but we went into everything else <laughs> no, we he, didn't go into hockey he was very detailed though and i i actually do agree with him with a lot of those prospects too i should have went to hockey with him yeah yeah that's he it. probably would have known the answer i mean i'll, I'll tell you this right he'll, now he'll be broadcasting college hockey next for all we know <laughs> let me tell you something that was one of the best interviews as far as giving us answers and strategically giving it to us in so many different layers i i thought it was a great interview interview by Roxy Bernstein. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we will get into more here on Down to the Wire. You're you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're you're, you're, you're listening to Down to the Wire. 
on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Little Will Smith, here we go, here we go. What? No, this is Chris Cross. Chris Cross, Will Smith, same old stuff. Didn't I tell you to play Will Smith? You told me to play both. So I alternated. And you are not one of those DJs. That's for damn sure. Speedy is not a DJ, ladies and gentlemen. I know. So I admitted that. He'll, he'll fall <laughs> off on that one. As you guys know, this is Down to the Wire. We are live every single Monday and Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host, Ella Marks. My co-host, Speedy PD. We just had Roxy Bernstein on. At 7.30, we will have the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Freed. I'm looking forward to talking a little baseball with him. Speedy Petey, we have our first guest of the show. You guys know him as Kenny. We know him as Kenny from Upstate and Crazy Kenny. <laughs> What's going on, Kenny? Much I thought that was a really good interview. Thank you, my friend. So you enjoyed the interview? Yes. So what did you enjoy about the interview before we get into a, a little football? I'm sure New York Giants pick in at number four. Well, I just thought that even if I don't know much about the person, you're calling like, why would I think somebody that does the voice for the oh, for the A's is interesting? You can make anybody sound interesting in sports. I'm like, this might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you this. Roxy Bernstein is one of the best interviewees we've had mm-hmm. on this show because everything we asked him, he gave us a precise answer to every question we asked him. So precise that he, he took it to a whole nother level and gave us in-depth on answering the question. So I, I thought it was a great interview. I think Roxy is fantastic, and we're going to have him on the show. If there is a baseball season, we will talk Oakland Athletic Baseball with him as we move forward. Yeah, hopefully there's a baseball season. I do. I do. I I'm think... supposed to do a show every week with this friend of mine, a wrap-up of the week. Mm-hmm. If we have a baseball show, I can't do a baseball season. I can't do a show with them. Well, you did ask me to come on your show on Friday. I'm looking forward to that. I really am. Yes, yes, yes. And what time are we uh, doing this show? 8.30, right? 8.30, we're going to tape it, then I release it to the public after tape. Oh, yeah, you release it to the public? Are you going to – you know what I'm going to do? Are, are we doing video conference? Are we doing a video no, show? audio. Audio? Oh, audio man. Only. I was actually going to pl- I was actually going to come on the show in just my underwear, just for you. <laughs> you can sit your home in your underpants if you want. Yeah, but I, w- I would have liked to come on camera and so all your fans could see the great Errol Marks in just my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> no? No interest? No, no audio. No video, I'm sorry. No video. But I'm looking forward. Uh, who do we have on the show? Any special guests? Uh, we were having my friend Cheese. Cheese is his name? <laughs> your friend Cheese. Is he from Wisconsin? <laughs> That's what they call her. That's her nickname. Oh, her she's, she oh he's not a he, her. it's a she. Yeah. So you call your girlfriend Cheese. <laughs> Interesting. She's not my girlfriend. <laughs> no, I didn't say she's your girlfriend. You Never mind, Kenny. You and Speedy. I, I, I Sometimes I wonder. But, uh, Kenny, before we let you go... What do you? Where do you think the Giants uh, go at number four? Well, I don't know if I, I haven't studied much. So, where do they get at number four? 
I uh, to me, I think Trevor Simeons is going to be there. And uh, not, Simmons. I'm sorry. Why do I? Andre, oh my God, Isaiah you're, Simmons. Your two quarter quarterback. That's what you well, confused. Trevor Simeons. You know why I'm thinking about Trevor Simeons because. Actually, I reached out to Trevor Simeons today on our social media, and I got a hold of him. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have Trevor Simeons on the show, and I'm trying to get him on Thursday's show mm-hmm. with Brandon Jacobs, Eric Coleman, and he actually got a hold of us on our social media. That's why I'm thinking Trevor Simeons. But uh, I'm looking forward. If, if, if I could get Trevor Simeons on the show, uh, I will talk Broncos football, and we'll talk a little Jets because he played for the Jets for a little bit of time before he broke for his two quarters <laughs> before he broke his ankle uh, bro- broke his ankles uh, against the Browns. Because so. I don't call after he's interviewed for Russell Week. I'll see you Friday night. I'm sorry. I'll see you Friday night. I will see you Friday night, my friends. Be safe, both of you. You too, my friend. Stay stay away from the boogity man over there. Happy 420 for you, those of you talking. <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. There you go. Right. Kenny Rayner, a.k.a. Kenny from Upstate, a.k.a. Kenny is psycho. Um, well, I'm going to actually um, leave the show for a little bit. I have to take care of something. Speedy still has to go from... 10 to 20 in his draft board. I will be back in just a few minutes, and we'll be doing the interview with Andrew Freed and finishing up our show. You ready, Speedy? Hit it. Here we go for number 11. So before we get to number 11, we'll re- I'll recap what I had. I had Chase Young 1, Isaiah Simmons 2, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Jerry Judy, C.D. Lamb number 6, Andrew Thomas, Jeff Okuda, Derek Brown, and then Tua. So 11 through 20 will go as such. Number 11 I have is Tristan Wirfs, uh, a tackle from Iowa that has been rumored in many different spots throughout the draft. He's been rumored as high as top five. He's rumored as low as 15, 16 to uh, Tampa and Denver as well. So he can go in any different direction, but he had the best running time, the 40-yard dash, under five seconds at the combine. So it shows he can move in addition to his raw brute strength, very good run blocker, good pass blocker as well. So Tristan Wirfs, number 11 for me. Number 12 is Mekhi Becton, a huge guy. He's the biggest offensive lineman among those projected to go in the first round. But again, he's another guy that had good speed for his size too. And again, another guy that has played in a RPO-type offense, so that could tell that he has good speed for his size as well, that he can move around. He's not just that traditional, old-school, big mauler type of defensive or offensive lineman. And again, projected right around the same areas. I've heard, I guess, highest four to the Giants. The Giants do, did like him right out of the combine. And I've heard, again, as low as 14 or 15, depending on how, where the other linemen end up going. Number 13 is a guy that has fallen for a lot of people that I still really like is Grant Delpit. I think Grant Delpit will end up being the best safety in this draft. I know he's had issues, according to some draft scouts, when it comes to tackling. But I think he's a raw raw good coverage guy can do man coverage his own coverage i think he does that very well he had some yes he did have some blunders at times throughout the lsu season but again he's a guy that i think has the speed to be able to do it he has the coverage ability to different parts of the field and again i think the tackling is something that will be cleaned up i think it hasn't it wasn't an issue really until this year again maybe different type of defensive system maybe losing some secondary pieces last year in the 2019 draft could have affected his role on that particular team but he's still a dynamic player good run tackler good blitzing type safety played very well in many key games as well for lsu against alabama in the college football playoff as well 
Number 14, another guy that had a rough combine, so he's fallen, but a guy I still like is A.J. Espinessa, the pass rusher out of Iowa. A guy that's powerful, good speed for his size as well, good agility. Uh, his moves, I think, will need to be refined a little bit. I think he has to grow as a pass rusher still, but I think his explosiveness is still there for the most part, his agility, and I think that'll end up helping. He might need a little time to get it going, I think, but I think his raw athletic ability and his pass rush ability, at least in a traditional sense, is there. I think my next pass rusher graded is a little more well-inclined with the moves, but I think in terms of Espinessa, I think his size and his athleticism will end up helping him. So he's number 14, and again, I think he was a top 10 prospect for the most part before he kind of fell out of the combine with a bad combine. Number 15 I have is Javon Kinlaw, a guy that I think has flown under the radar for a while. A defensive tackle out of South Carolina who, again, they're not talked about in the SEC because they haven't been good at football for a while, but that doesn't mean they don't develop good defensive prospects. Kinlaw is a guy that I think is versatile. He could be a 3-4 defensive end, a 4-3 defensive tackle, good run stopper. His pass rush ability came along, I think, really in the second half of the season for South Carolina last year when he had a more prominent role. So I think he's definitely somebody that's very interesting. He might fall later into the draft just because a lot of teams don't really need interior offensive line. A lot of people thought he might go in the middle of the first round to Indianapolis or maybe a team like the Broncos. But again, the Colts just traded their pick now to the 49ers. It got to Forrest Buckner, who's a very similar type player to what Ken Law is. A little bigger, but still very similar overall in terms of his pass rush ability for a defensive tackle. So he'll probably fall maybe to 15 to the Broncos. Otherwise, he'll probably be drafted later in the first round. So number 16 is the other pass rusher I was hinting at, Caleb on Chason, the pass rusher from LSU. He didn't play all year because he had some injury issues, and I believe he was suspended for a game too. So I think him getting his stock up at the end of the college football season did end up helping. I think he is the one with a lot more moves refined. He's more of that pure speed rusher in terms of he can be a finesse guy. He could be swim move, spin move. He really has all that down where I think his stock definitely has risen because you're seeing a lot of faster defensive ends get drafted earlier. So I think he could be drafted before Espinessa and probably will be drafted before Espinessa. And again, another guy that played really well in that championship game. So he's number 16 for me. Number 17 is the guy Roxy was mentioning, is, is LaVisca Chenault. I really like him if he's healthy. He's had trouble with injuries. He's coming off surgery, which is why he did not have a great combine. But the guy is very skilled. I think he's skill-wise the next best receiver after Judy and Lamb. And I think if he's healthy, he's very good. He's slot and outside guy, good deep threat, good size. His raw speed isn't great, but I, again, that, some of that has to do with the injury as well. He's somebody that could follow the second round, though, because of the injury, and that's the only thing that concerns me. But I like him as a player, and Roxy did mention that as well. And there's a lot of receiver-needed teams at the end of the first round, so that's interesting. Two corners back-to-back, and Christian Fulton and C.J. Henderson, 18 and 19. Fulton, I think, really had the better year. Henderson had the better combine, so we'll have to see where that ends up going. Fulton, I think, is a better zone corner, and... Or, uh, better man corner. Henderson's the better zone corner for the most part, but both are very good. Good ball skills. Decent tackling abilities for both of them. I have Fulton a little higher just because I think he's a little more well-rounded. 
and has been more consistent throughout the year. But both, I think, will go towards the end of the first round. Maybe Dallas at 17 could be an option for them. Denver, if they want to go corner in the middle of the first round, or Tampa, if they don't want to take an offensive lineman, is definitely interesting. And number 20, another LSU guy, Patrick Queen, a guy I liked even when he was the number two linebacker at alongside Devin White at that LSU defensive scheme. I think he has a lot of great speed, excellent man coverage ability, I think, very underrated for a linebacker. Uh, he's a little smaller, so the tackling has been an issue at times, but he's still a good outside run stopper, and he's very good in coverage as well. He could be somebody that could go later in the first round, too. You could see a team like the Raiders, a team like Philadelphia at 21 if they don't want to go with a wide receiver, Ravens, Packers. There's a lot of teams that need linebackers at the end of the draft. So that is my number 20, and Errol is back now. So. I, I did come back. I want to give a shout-out to all the fans. Uh, Speedy went to quick break. I thought he was going to go right into his draft his draft board from 10 to 20. I, I told him I was going to give him the opportunity to finish, finish his 10 to 20. Um, I actually had to answer a call from the fire department. But uh, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into this particular story, which I've been wanting to get into. Does the virtual NFL draft, will it change team strategies moving forward this season? When we come back, we'll get into that. And at 7.30, we have Andrew Freed here on Down to the Wire. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, 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 you're listening, listening to, to Down, Down to, to the, the wire. wire on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Oh, I love this track. A little summertime. As you guys know, a little Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. 631-965-4990 is the number to call. As you know, this is Down to the Wire. We are live every single Monday and Tuesday from 6 p.m. To 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with Speedy Petey. Um, sometimes I wonder if Speedy is all here on this show. Sometimes he's in another world, but he's sitting right next to me. Maybe half of his body is sitting next to uh, next to me, and the other half, his brain, is somewhere else. But, anyways, I, what, what am I, a shapeshifter? <laughs> I don't know. With you, I could only guess with some specifics on what you do behind and cl- behind and in front of the camera. Anyways, I, I do want to get into this particular story. And virtual, this whole virtual NFL draft has really transitioned what we might do in the future and what the league and some of these GMs and owners might decide to do. I understand the NFL is trying to raise money. And 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 they they they're trying to make money. I'm not raise money. They're trying to make money. And with the NFL draft and what the NFL draft does, not only for some of these young players that have the opportunity to go on stage, meet Roger Goodell, shake Roger Goodell's hand and hug him and lift up his his new jersey, his new team that he's going to be playing for for the next 5 years is something that these players absolutely want to have the opportunity of doing. But if they can somehow perfect this virtual NFL draft, just like they did with the WNBA, which I thought was very successful. It was very successful. I think it was, was it Friday night? or, or Big Friday, yeah. It was Friday or Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken. And it was very successful, the way they did it. The WNBA did it. Uh, it worked. And it worked to exactly 
what you know the WNBA wanted to do, how they wanted to bring it out to the fan and for the fan to absolutely tune in and, and watch how the draft and, and where the draft uh, winded up going. But the NFL is completely different. There is round after round after round. There's seven rounds in the NFL. With the WNBA, it's only one round, and that's it. So it's going to be very interesting how the NFL and, and some of these executives of these organizations, like the Dallas Cowboys, the New York Jets, the New York Giants, how they're going to interact with each other virtually before they make the decision on who they want to draft. Now, does this change the game this season or change uh, a team's plan this season or for the future? I think for both. Because if this works out very well, I think the NFL might look to do this not even not just this year, maybe next year really? with everything that's going on with COVID-19. We don't know how this is going to be fixed in in the next year. There might be more problems ahead of us before we get a serum to stop COVID-19, where they're not going to want to have these uh, events like the NFL draft when there's no need for it and have a bunch a bunch of people, uh, like thousands and thousands of people in the audience just watching a bunch of players go on a stage, raise up a jersey, and, and kiss Roger Goodell on the cheek. I mean, that's, that's my argument with this. And, and I, I swear, as a fan, as a sports fan, you can't be very excited about what you're looking forward to on Thursday night because you don't know what to expect. Now, the WNBA is completely different. And yes, the NFL is a multi-billion dollar industry, one of the biggest organizations in professional sports and throughout the country in any organization. Last year, the NFL made $18.6 billion. That's endorsements and everything. Everything rolled up in one. In just the Super Bowl, they made close to, a, I would say, about three, $400 million just of endorsements just off of one game. But... The NFL, just like every organization, is going to try to find a way to protect the players. That's what they're going to do. Protect the players, protect the executives, the owners, even the league. Now, I do believe this is going to change everything. It's going to change this season. Absolutely. And anybody, oh, yeah. anybody that doesn't think that this draft is going to change everything for a lot of teams this season, because one team might have one step up on all the other teams on how they're going to draft and how they're going to use this virtual draft to benefit them right. and other teams are not to they're not going to know what to expect they're going to jump in this expecting the unexpected right and it's in interesting because of what philosophies you're going to go by obviously there's some new school teams that are using the analytics using the technology to scout out these players that might think they have an advantage just by watching the tape and maybe scouting them without having to do too much in terms of workouts because obviously a lot of pro days were canceled and stuff like that. But again, it'll be interesting to see also if they end up drafting and how they're going to end up working them out later because when is training camps going to open? Will there be – there's not going to be any rookie mini camps most likely that they usually have in May either. So 
will that stop people from drafting maybe more project players or players that aren't as refined yet? And might we see more safe picks as a result of that too is going to be very interesting. I, I don't know what a safe pick is because you're expecting these players to step into the NFL with a bunch of men. And when I say men, most of these men are in, in the middle age, NFL middle age is like 27, 28. So they're still kids. Sure. But they're stepping in with guys that are twice the size of them coming out of college or twice as fast as them as far as understanding how to make the plays, how to call the plays, or how to align to to make the plays in the middle of the field defensively or offensively. So it's going to take a little while for these young NCAA, NCAA players coming out of college to figure out the speed of the game and understanding how to be position in position, knowing that there's not going to be practices. There's not going to be really off the field OTAs really. So it's going to be, it's going to be a work in progress, not only for some of these teams, but some of these players that are going to have to do this on their own, which is going to be something unique that we haven't seen before. I think I'm, what I'm saying is I'm more referring to the prospects that we know what they are, but maybe they don't have as much upside. Like they are what they are and they're great already versus a player that maybe has, if they get enough moves, if it's your pass rusher, like if you, receivers, different types of catches, different types of routes. Maybe those players will end up falling as a result of this, and maybe teams will be safer as a result, rather than maybe gambling on somebody later in the first round or middle in the first round that maybe has the upside, but either has injury issues or is raw or something like that. I think is more of what I was referring to. Well, you refer to a lot of things, and sometimes I wonder and shake my head when you talk, but I, I will say this. When you look at the NFL and you look at this virtual draft that they're trying to implicate right now, because and I, I, I watched a documentary on ESPN the other day where these players were getting, and I, I wouldn't say it was a documentary, it was like a 10, 15 minute thing that the ESPN had where they were sending all the different um, virtual things they kind of have to set up in their house so they can keep up on when if they're going to get a phone call from a team or an organization are are the cameras going to be placed where he's going to be sitting on his sofa they got to set this up and with the whole covid-19 you're not going to be setting all these sending out all these technical guys to set up all their cameras and their audio stuff for these players to be ready to be drafted so these players are going to have to figure that out as well so i think it's to me it's a stage where we don't know how this is going to work out with some of these players and some of these teams and some of these uh, families that are going to be there trying to represent uh, the player that's getting drafted. So uh, I'm very intrigued on how this is going to work, and uh, we will be doing a draft party here um, at the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, and I'm very uh, excited to do this where we're going to do – last year I was not part of the draft class, and I wasn't doing the draft show with the home stretch. Uh, Mikey C was a part of that last year. Uh, you were a part of it last year. Uh, there were a couple of Tyler and and a bunch of other people. But I did this two or three years ago, and I'm I, I'm not what you call a guy that's going to sit here for thirty picks and and just twiddle my thumb. So I'm going to entertain you guys. <laughs> I'm going to entertain you guys not only with the picks and us talking about particular players and where we think some of these players are going to go, how they will fit with the teams, and all that other stuff. But we're also going to have some fun with you guys. We'll do some trivia questions with you guys. It will be fun and very interesting to get into that with all the fans out there. But um, again, when I look at the big picture of where the NFL going, the NFL is going with this virtual D, uh, this virtual. I said virtual DJ, virtual um, draft. 
Yes, we'll go to break. Uh, when we go to break, guys, we're going to go to a quick break. Uh, we have Andrew Freed on the other line. We're going to go to a quick break. We're going to set up, and we'll have Andrew Freed, uh, the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, here on Down to the Wire. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, 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 you're listening to Down to the Wire on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Down to the Wire. We are live every single Monday through Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As you know, you can call us at 631-965-4990. We had Roxy Bernstein, the voice of the Oakland Athletics, on the show. And now we have our new guest. Yes, the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Mr. Andrew Freed. What's going on, Andrew? Hey, guys. How you doing? Hope everybody's staying safe up there. We are, Thanks, man. How, too. how is your family doing? Well, I mean, we're, we're doing what everybody else is doing, uh, and that's staying inside just as much as we can. Uh, we haven't uh, driven each other too crazy as of yet, uh, but uh, my, my kids and I, we, we got a dog, so we take them for walks, and outside of that, we pretty much stay at home, except for uh, trips to the grocery store and just trying to do our part try to get this thing to go away as fast as possible, get back to some baseball. Well, speaking of getting back to baseball, do you think there's going to be a baseball season this year? Uh, I think there will be. I'm not so sure that there should be. Um, but, but really, I say that only in light of the fact that, you know, there's no, there's no cure for this thing yet, uh, and people can't be around each other safely. So, uh, and yet, at the same time, and it's not to be diminished, uh, but second, secondarily, but pretty close second, is that uh, these teams have to make money, and the reason is because they've got to pay their employees. Um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's going to be a lost year in many ways. Uh, but if they can cobble together some sort of season and generate some sort of income through television and have games without fans, uh, I think that is a worthwhile proposition as long and only if that it's still safe for even those of us that. That uh, the, the small amount of us that'll be around each other, it's still safe because there's no reason to get anybody sick over a baseball game, regardless of the economics. But I do think that the, you know, the, on balance, it, it, it is almost as shocking to the system when people are losing their jobs as it is for what is happening for so many people around the country right now. And that's so I, I think, you know, from a financial standpoint, they're probably will be some sort of season. What it's going to be, I don't know. I have this fantasy that this is the year we should just try everything. <laughs> you know, do the robot ups, do the, the time between pitches, do every scratch every itch that you've thought of uh, a Major League Baseball, and let's see how it goes, whether, you know, maybe an 80-game season or something like that. Who knows? Andrew, obviously there is going to be a shortened season, and the Rays have a lot of young players, several top 100 prospects, including the number one prospect in baseball. Do you think these guys are MLB ready, and how do you think the delayed season will affect their development if they are? Well, I, I think you know the the pitchers are the ones when spring training ever gets started again. If it does, they're the ones. I mean, basically, spring training is all about the pitchers. I mean, it's kind of the reason that we even have it. I mean, hitters it tends to not take too much time, comparatively speaking, to get their timing down. For pitchers, though, you've got to ramp up. You you can't just go out there and throw ninety five pitches. Uh, at you know, 90 miles an hour and expect to bounce back. So, I mean, th that's going to take time for the pitchers to build up. Uh, I think whenever we get the season started, and hopefully it's a win, uh, that there will be expanded rosters. So you can have more 
more pitchers on there to, especially for a team like the Rays and other teams that are using things like the opener and, and want to make sure that they're not overtaxing certain pitchers, especially now. I mean, remember the, the pitchers were almost not fully, but they're about halfway there to being ramped up ready for the season, which would have happened about two, two and a half weeks after it was, uh, after it was postponed. So you know, they've had, they're going to have to build all the way back up. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of then I'm guessing maybe a three to four week spring training of some kind, uh, in terms of the prospects, I mean, Wander Franco, who you're talking about the number one prospect. No, I don't think he's ready for the big leagues yet. He just turned 19 years old. Uh, I spent 11 years uh, in the minor leagues as a broadcaster, and I always use this because it's true. I, I saw so many guys that were rushed to the major leagues that it, it, that were can't-miss prospects that didn't work out well in the big leagues. I never saw a guy that was held back a little longer not succeed because of that. In other words, hmm. I'd rather err on the side of caution for a young player. There's a lot more to being a big league player I've come to learn over these last 15, 16 years than just how do you do between the white lines. It's a, it's a it's a whole different lifestyle up here, and for a kid that's 19, I would like to see Wander Franco uh, get as many reps as he can uh, and then only get here when he's able to come up and not have to go back to the minors. We are talking to the great, the voice, of, well, the great Andrew Freed, the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. Andrew, does Blake Snell get back to that Cy Young year that he had in 2017, 2018? He had an offseason last year. You know, that year, so many things fell into place. The Rays utilized him very, very well. Uh, they got him in and got him out of games when, when it was necessary. So they kept his pitch count where it needed to be, and he was really strong towards the end of the year. Um, but, you know, Blake is a great example of a guy that became a really good pitching prospect, and then when he came up, while it looked like he was ready, he really wasn't. And he got beat up and had to go back to the, back to the minor leagues for some significant time. Then when he came back, once again, uh, he was ready to, to really blast forth. Blake has four quality, not even quality, four great pitches. I mean, he's got fastball at 97, true curveball, true slider, true changeup. Uh, and that, that's just not that common amongst pitchers. Usually you'll see fastball, changeup, and one of the two breaking pitches every once in a while. There's always one that's okay. His curve is better than a slider or slider better than the curve. Blake, all four pitches are really out pitches. Uh, so last year I think was like that typical year that happens after the Cy Young year that you see so many times throughout baseball history. For whatever reason, the breaks didn't go his way. He wasn't quite as sharp. Uh, the expectation was there that, that hadn't been there. And then he was hurt. So everything kind of came together. I mean, Blake is in at least was. I haven't seen him since, uh, what, March 11th or 12th, whenever we were all back in Port Charlotte. He is in great shape this year. Uh, so, you know, I, all signs are there. I, I can't predict that he's going to go win the Cy Young again, but I think he has every bit of ace written all over him. And, you know, if he's the pitcher that this rotation is centered around, then we're in pretty good shape. Now, if there is a baseball season, there is some talks that they're going to tra try to change the divisions into a cactus and grapefruit league and change the divisions around because it makes it easier for these teams to play against one another. What are your thoughts to that if, MLB, if the MLB decides to do that? Well, I mean, everything's an if. I mean, every single option that they have trying to get this thing started has challenges to it. Every single option is not perfect. You know, this year, regardless of whether we actually have the baseball season or not, it's not going to be like any other season that's ever been going back to the 1800s. Uh, this is going to be a very different, very odd, rather uncomfortable, unorthodox 
sort of a season. So regardless of, of how they do it, at le- I'm looking at it as at least hopefully there will be some sort of baseball. If they blow up the leagues and the divisions for one year and we have a thing where it's the Florida teams uh, together and then you play the Arizona teams, okay. I mean, that's, you know, nothing – Nothing is really optimal. Nothing is really great at this point. Uh, but there, there are more things more important, keeping people safe. I mean, to me, as long as we are deemed safe to be around each other, then I'm all for everything. I mean, uh, uh, what I would love, of course, like everyone else, is to have as much normalcy as possible. You know, I'd like to not have to blow up the leagues for a year and not have to blow up the divisions and make it regional with the the, the uh, Grapefruit League teams against the Cactus League teams. But, look, if that's the way it has to be, then that's the way. If it's, if it's either that or nothing, I'll take that 10 times out of 10. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's going to have to be that way, though, because I, I, don't, I don't know that Arizona is ever going to be safer than Florida, is ever going to be safer than New York, is ever going to be safer than, you know, Kansas City. I mean, I, 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 don't, I think the, the whole thing comes down to safety. I mean, we all want this game to be played. You know, people need to be able to support their families uh, from a salary standpoint. But I think the country could certainly use some pretty good television, which would be Major League Baseball. Uh, but it, it, as long as the experts, and I mean the true experts, the, the, the people that study this stuff, the epidemiologists, the, the, the scientists, the people that are smart, that have studied this stuff, uh, Dr. Fauci has become a rock star. When they say it's safe to play, that's when I'll feel good playing it, and not a moment before. We are talking to the great voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Freed. Andrew, I personally thought he should have been one uh, manager of the year last year, did a great job with the second lowest payroll. Do you think he got snubbed to win the award, or are you surprised he wasn't even nominated in one of those top three? I mean, I'm probably more than biased because I've been with the Rays for 15 years and with the obstacles that the organization faces when you're, in a, when you're in a division with Boston and New York and Toronto and Baltimore and they can all outspend you by large, large margins. Uh, I, I think that Rays managers, whenever you make postseason, should probably win the manager of the year every year. Uh, to me, the, the greatest thing, the, the greatest accomplishment that's ever happened in this organization, and I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember what it was like back in 2008. I do. When the Rays won uh, for the first time under Joe Madden. I mean, it was heresy to think that the Rays could ever not only finish ahead of, but even compete with Boston and New York. And to, to not only get by them and win the division and then do it again two years later, uh, in 2010, win the American League East. I mean, to me, that, that would have seemed so crazy a decade ago. Now the Rays have, have broken that mold and said you can win this division, but the manager and the front office has to stay a little bit ahead, if not a lot ahead, of what the uh, other teams are doing. And because, I mean, Kevin Cash, I've said this before, he's, he manages more by the third inning than most managers do the entire game <laughs> with regard to openers and pitchers and the way it's set up. And the way the front office comes up with their game plans for that night and the way they uh, alternate players in and out, and more than just platoons, it's sometimes different combinations of players every game, uh, almost inning to inning sometimes. Uh, that I think there is more true ma- – you know, a lot of times I think a lot of managers do their best work from the ninth inning to the first inning. In other words, after the game until the next day, probably do most of their managing. I think those that have managed the Rays, in particular Joe Madden and Kevin Cash, not only managed well during that time, but during the game, they're, they're doing X's and O's 
you know, all throughout the game. If you could see the voluminous information that they are juggling every day uh, leading up to the game, the game itself, and then right after the game when they do their own post-game wrap with the front office, I mean, there, there is a lot going on. So I, I'll, I'll call it what it is. I think Kevin Cash could win the, the manager of the year the last couple of years. Now, Bob Melvin won it two years ago. I was all for that. Last year, I would have loved to have seen Kevin to th- take that team to 96 wins to, to me. Uh, not only should it be, have been top three, you should have been number one. Andrew, speaking about the Yankees, the Yankees have been, them and the Red Sox have been dominant. They've been dominating this division for years. And then the Rays, over the years, they get better. They're one of the teams to beat, and then they, they completely trade away pieces, and they start rebuilding again. Where do you see this team this year with a shortened season against the, the powerful Yankees with the addition of Garrett Cole and with that pitching staff now, which is one of the best pitching staffs in baseball? They could win it all. They, there's no question in my mind that the race could win it all. Uh, they've got to stay healthy. You know, what, what's weird about that is that, you know, last year this team really didn't stay healthy, and they still were able to win 96 games. You know, Tyler Glass now missed, what, about two-thirds of the season. Blake Snell was on the shelf through a lot of it. Uh, young pitchers were pressed into duty. I mean, the, the lifeblood of the Rays is the farm system, and that's why – We've never really taken a full step back and said we're now in rebuild. You know, we're going to tank for a while and then we're going to rebuild. That's not the way they've done. It. They could have done it a, a number of times, but they've always tried to at least be competitive. And it didn't work so well in 2015. They won 80 games in 2016. I think they won 68. Uh, but at that point, they drafted Brendan McKay, and because they were able to get some better draft picks, they really started to rebuild uh, the system. But they were still trying to compete at the major league level. Now, over the last couple of years, they've gone from, uh, what, 80 wins in 17 to 90 wins in 18. Phenomenal. 96 wins in 19. There's no reason for me in the world to think that they couldn't win at all, especially in a short uh, short season. I think, I mean, it's open season for everybody. I think a lot of teams uh, could, could probably win it all. But I would put the race chances as good as everybody else. Now, they've got to figure out how to beat Garrett Cole, something they couldn't do in October, but they had done several times throughout not only last season but uh, the seasons before. So they can beat him, but, uh, boy, Cole was something else during the postseason. But obviously that's something that's going to have to be figured out if, if they are going to win because you've got to go through New York and you've got to go through Garrett Cole. Andrew, one of those uh, front office executives you were talking about with the with the Rays, the front office that they've had, just went to the Red Sox and Shane Bloom to become their new general manager. What kind of impact do you think they could have on the Red Sox organization, who are normally like that high payroll type thing? Could they operate kind of like the Rays too, or do you think it's exclusive to what the Rays do? Well, what's been difficult, I think, from the Rays' standpoint is that when the Rays got good, when they really – put together that, that dream team, so to speak, with Joe Madden and Andrew Friedman and Matt Silverman and Stu Sternberg at the top, uh, they were starting to really do a lot of things that other teams had not caught up to, whether it be defensive shifts, whether it be openers, whether it be utilizing your roster the way they utilized it. Uh, the, the Rays were far and ahead uh, of where the Yankees were, where the Red Sox were, where just about everybody else was. They really were cutting edge. But what happens is when that, when that goes on, you know, imitation is the sincerest form, other teams start to do it. Uh, and at that point, the other teams were starting to do what the Rays were doing on top of the fact that they had triple the amount of payroll that the Rays had. So it's extremely difficult to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, if you're technologically caught up 
with uh, w- with other teams, and then they still have that very large amount of payroll and are able to go into the free agent market like the Rays are unable to do. So I, you know, I, I think what what Bloom going to the Red Sox will do, and it's pretty obvious what happens when other organizations take you know what what the Rays have. James Click goes to be GM of the Astros. You know, two years ago. Rocco Baldelli was plucked off the staff to go manage the Twins. Charlie Montoya was plucked off the staff to go manage the Blue Jays. You know, other teams see what the Rays are doing, and they want to figure out how in the world are they doing it. Uh, so they're, they offer these guys their dream jobs, and they should take it. That's fine. You know, there can only be one manager with the Rays. There can only be one GM. So the, I have nothing against those guys for taking those opportunities, but I think it does make it more difficult uh, for the Rays to compete, in particular in the Astros situation this year, because I thought – that with the Astros' uh, wrongdoings, their, their evil doings, I think they should have been forced to hire from within to be general manager. I, I don't think that was fair. This is me speaking. This is not me speaking for the Rays. This is just me, my own personal thoughts. I thought, it was, I thought it's a shame the Rays have to lose one of their top executives uh, right at, at the dawn of spring training to go to the Astros because the Astros <laughs> had, had done so many things wrong. So I, I, I think that was wrong, but Okay, regardless, James goes there, Haim goes to Boston, and they'll, of course, try to implement many of the things that they did with the Rays because even though these teams have these large payrolls, the goal for every owner is to try to win as many games and win championships while spending as little as you have to. And I think other teams try to pick off what the Rays are doing to try to figure out how exactly you do that. We are talking to the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Freed. Andrew, you stole my question about what you thought about the Houston Astros and everything that went on over in the offseason. So here's another question I have that I wanted to ask you. Throughout last year, there was, there was things coming out of the league and some of the players saying that the balls were juiced. And Rob Manford came out and said that the balls weren't juiced. Then all of a sudden, throughout the playoffs, he says, I'm going to be looking at the seams of the balls in the offseason and trying to figure out if the balls were juiced in, the off- in last year's offseason. What are your thoughts to the juice ball situation? You know, it, uh, I'm old enough now where I've been through many cycles of this. Uh, I can remember in about 1987 uh, when I was a 16-year-old, there was a talk that year because home runs were up. I remember Wade Boggs had a bunch of home runs that year, and people were wondering what's going on with the ball. Uh, what's, you know, the, there's something that they're more tightly wound. They're paying the workers that make the baseball differently, so they're coming back with, with different tension levels. I remember it happened again at various other times. I think every, every so often you go through these cycles in baseball, conspiracy theorists wonder what's going on. I'm not here to say because I don't know is the ball any different. Uh, I know that uh, the laces are different at the major league level than they are uh, in the minor leagues. Until last year, AAA started using the same baseball as big league baseballs for the first time ever, and that was to try to combat what would happen when, when young pitchers would come up. Like we had this kid, Diego Castillo, you made – know him a, a right-handed uh, relief pitcher and he, he's great in the minors and because the laces are a little bit lower in the big leagues he had a he couldn't get a sinker to sink as much as he wanted it to and it just took him a little bit of a uh, time to get used to that now uh, you know in, in terms of does that make the ball go farther i don't know i mean i i think part of it is the philosophy of of hitting in the game right now you know i i, I watch a lot of games on youtube from past generations and one of the things that really stands out is how uh, uh, the hitters have changed. You know, I think there's much more of a swing for the fences. I don't care if I strike out 150 times mm. now where years ago, and I'm not saying it's better or worse, but years ago, if you struck out 100 times, that was, 
that was an embarrassment. You know, a lot more guys choked up. A lot more guys hit it to the opposite field. There was more of a station-to-station uh, fought in baseball, hit behind the runner. Now I see a lot less of that. I see a lot more guys swinging for the fences, and most of the new ballparks are built for the home run. So I think there's a lot of things that go into it. I'm not an immediate conspiracy theorist to say it's because of the baseball. Could it be wound a little tighter? Could that be going on? It wouldn't surprise me, but I have no way to know one way or the other. I just kind of enjoy the game however it's presented to me. <laughs> Andrew, last question for me. This is focusing on your broadcasting career. Do you have a favorite call or a moment that stands out the most? Was it in that 08 season? Was that in, in that 2011 season where they came back and beat the edge the Red Sox out for that playoff spot, or is it something else? Do you have one call that stands out the most to you or a moment? Oh, jeez. Oh, man. I, <laughs> I don't know if I have one. I mean, the, the one that, that people always talk to me about is, you know, Evan Longoria's walk-off at the end of the 2011 season. But, you know, there's, there's stuff throughout. To me, my, my favorite part of broadcasting isn't even necessarily that, that big moment. Uh, I mean, those are great, and we all kind of live for the excitement of that, and there was nothing like Evans Homer. There was nothing like winning the pennant in 08. There was nothing like last year making postseason again or winning the Wild King game. You know, that we're just my – my broadcast partner and I, Dave, have been very fortunate to be around some wonderful moments, and those are all thrilling and exciting. My favorite part of being a baseball broadcaster is hoping to be, as I've heard it explained before, just good company. Uh, I, I like being someone that hopefully – people enjoy having with them in their cars or as we're down here on our boats or when you're doing yard work or when you're doing stuff around the house, you're doing chores, and you don't mind me hanging out with you as this uh, disembodied voice uh, going throughout your house or in your headphones. Uh, th- those are the moments that I like, you know, because, you, you know, there's a lot of moments in baseball where things are, are maybe at a lull. Uh, keeping those moments alive, coming up with a funny story, an anecdote that keeps things moving along, that entertains someone to hold the audience. Uh, that, to me, I think is the, the biggest challenge of this and what I get most satisfaction about. It's funny, when they, when they play back uh, highlights uh, of, of particular announcers, you usually hear those big moments. But, you know, when I, when I go back and like when I was growing up, Chuck Thompson was the Hall of Fame voice of the Orioles. I mean, he felt so paternal to me that you know, he almost felt like he was a, a, a fatherly figure, you know, that was always kind of there and around the house with me as I'm doing stuff. And I, I'd, I'd be thrilled to know that maybe I'm doing that for some kid around here in, in Florida sometime or on Sirius or whatever platform we're on. That those are the moments that excite me more. Uh, even than the big call. I was just thinking that I'm hopefully providing good company for somebody. We are talking to the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Freed. Last question for me, and this is a good question because – I haven't spoken to you about this. I have spoken to a bunch of other analysts, and I want to know your real opinion towards this. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, even Gary Sheffield, some of these guys that did steroids in the past, should they be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and why? I don't think so. Uh, and, you know, I, I go back to even you know Pete Rose. I mean, I, I'm very strongly against Pete Rose being into the Hall of Fame. And every once in a while, uh, an argument comes along, and it wavers me one way towards, okay, I understand that 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 Pete was was one of the great faces of baseball. I mean, the guy embodied hustle. He em, em, embodied a, a, a winner, he, the most hits ever. But when you do something that has such that is not only a black mark on the game, and, I, and I'll throw this in there with Bonds and with Clemens and with with whomever else, if you, if you have that power within baseball, and, the, and look, the people that have power not only are, are owners and, and high-ranking executives, but players. 
you know, players that are the faces of the game. They are the face of the product that we're selling to America. And if you're going to put such a black mark on it and put a stain to the fact, especially within the steroid era and, and like what the Astros just did, if you're going to, if you're going to do, make choices to make yourself better at the expense of uh, challenging the, the, the validity of the game, the true competitiveness of the game, then to me – your great things that you did in your career work against you. I think it's a stronger example to keep Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame to the other players that come along that might one day tempted to gamble on the game. And I think the same thing with Bonds and Clemens and those guys. Those guys were phenomenal players. That Yes, they were phenomenal before they got into the pharmaceuticals. But the fact that to the modern player, and I, I don't care about the past player as much as the next generation. What signal are we sending to the next generation of Major League Baseball player? Are you able to still get into the Hall of Fame if you cheat the game? Are you able to get into the Hall of Fame if you're a gambler and a degenerate that is, is challenging the entire uh, uh, thought of competitiveness? Then to me, uh, it's still contributing to the game in a sense that you don't allow them in because it sends a message to the next generation those guys, the greatest players, were punished. They're not in the Hall of Fame. I better not do it, too. That's the way I feel. Andrew, why don't you tell the fans how they can find you all over social media? Um, uh, I'm, I, I have a Twitter account that uh, started a little <laughs> while ago. Uh, I, was, I followed for a while, but uh, I started tweeting at around 18. Uh, it's at AndrewFreed33. And that's, uh, I'm always happy to answer questions or talk to people. Or Believe me, if you want to talk baseball, I'm here for you right now. Well, Andrew, we love to get you back on the show when the season does start, or, or if it will start. But I, I do believe we'll have a baseball season. But when it does, I would love to get you on. Hey, anytime, guys. I appreciate it. And stay safe up there in Long Island. All right, Andrew, uh, if you can, just instant message us so we can send you the clip of the show, my friend. That would be great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Andrew Freed, ladies and gentlemen, the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. A really good interview. He gave us some good mm -hmm. insight to two really, really good interviews yes. today. Roxy Bernstein and Andrew Freed. Both guys are voices of two professional baseball teams. One guy that also works for ESPN for uh, football and basketball, college football and basketball, uh, Roxy Bernstein. And Andrew gave us some, so much insight on the Tampa Bay Rays and what the Rays have done. And, and really, a lot of these teams now taking executives away from the Rays on what they have built over the years. And really, they're the masterminds of what baseball should be as we move yep. forward. So mm -hmm. it's been absolutely extraordinary what the Rays have done in professional baseball. And the best way to tell that is when players leave, if they're the same somewhere else. And a lot of the times, the Rays players haven't been that. The Rays know when to let go players at the right time, how to make great trades. And like Andrew was saying, how to find the next guy to join the front office, the next guy to manage the team in those circumstances. They're just a very well-oiled machine. And again, it's just a shame that they have a stadium that has had trouble getting fans and a city, that, again, that has had trouble supporting baseball as much as it should. But again, into those great seasons, they've still had that in the postseason as well, the, the great support. Just again, they just don't have the money like these other teams do. Well, we're not going to be able to get to debate hour because uh, we had two really good interviews, and they actually stayed on for a significant amount of time, which I like to thank uh, Andrew Freed and Roxy Bernstein. They gave us some good insight of what's going on throughout uh, the leagues and, and all the different uh, sports that they work, work in. So I'd like to thank both of them. But I do want to get into this particular story. How would you, del how would, um, 
how would a delay of the season affect the Red Sox punishment now that the commissioner has said he will not release any ruling till the season start? And that's a good question because everything that's going on with the Boston Red Sox right now, we don't know what is going to what the commissioner has decided on how he wants to uh, attack the situation with the stuff coming out from uh, over the last couple of years of the Red Sox possibly cheating and using the same tools the Astros did. And possibly more. And possibly more. The same way the Astros did the last couple of years and, and why they won their World Series championship in 2017. So uh, it's, it's an interesting story, and I'm very surprised now that there's nothing going on in sports why – uh, the commissioner has not released anything on his ruling with the Red Sox. Obviously, I think it's bad. That's what I think. And if he releases it now, it's gonna it's gonna really shun the the Boston Red Sox. It really is. It's gonna put a big hex on their season. Even though I do believe the Red Sox are not gonna be any good this year. I really don't think they are. They have Chris Sale that's gonna be out for the rest of the season uh, with uh, his UCL uh, tear. So he's he has to have Tommy John surgery. This team, this pitching staff, there is no pitching staff. They traded away David Price. They traded away one of their their great player and Mookie Betts to the Dodgers. So they're rebuilding. Yes, they got some good prospects now. They brought, they have Devers. They brought in the kid that they traded for Mookie Betts, who's the number one Bird prospect. Yeah. Yep, the number one prospect in baseball. So yes, there are good things about what we've seen. The Red Sox are trying to do rebuild their farm system, rebuild this team to what 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 the Yankees are right now. What the uh, the Angels are trying to do right now. All these teams are starting to transition, bringing in their young players like the Chicago White Sox, like even Detroit is trying to do right now, trying to get rid of their old players and rebuild their farm system. That's the way of the league now. The league is now not over. They don't want to overpay these free agents anymore. And I think that's going to change as the years go by too because I do believe after seeing – uh, um, Garrett Cole getting what he got from the New York Yankees, the $325 million. I don't think you're ever going to see a contract like that for a starting pitcher again. And it's interesting with the shortened season, too, because there's going to be a lot more rotations. There's going to be a lot more openers. And those teams are going to be tested into that theory. And if teams start succeeding off of that and knowing how to overcome maybe issues with starting pitching or issues, again, with not being able to bring it in, bring in free agents, then you're going to see a lot of that more often too. And it definitely could be the new wave of the league when it comes to player development. And a lot of those middle and smaller market teams have really shifted that way of thinking too. And the two guys we had on today, both Roxy Bernstein and Andrew Free, both have teams that are operating those kinds of money ball. I think the two, I think doing the, it very well. I think the two best organizations, I believe the two best organizations with the least amount of money that are working with the least amount of stuff and two organizations in the last 10 years that have been playoff contending teams in the A's and the Tampa Bay Rays. And why not have both broadcasters, both play-by-play guys on the same show talking about the same thing? And really, both interviews were so really perfect in every kind of way from going from one sport to the other with Roxy Bernstein, him giving us the inside of the A's and what baseball is doing and his thoughts of Rob Manford and how he made a mistake, how he dropped the ball with the whole uh, Houston Astros thing. And the same thing with Andrew Freed. He gave us an insight with the Astros. We We didn't even have to bring up the Astros. He gave us the insight on why he thought that the Astros should have been uh, hit even worse than what they had 
by the the commission of Rob Manford. And so he, he brought up a point that was great too. He sh- they should be forced to hire within, and it makes a lot of sense. Why should they be able to take a top guy from the Rays organization like that too? He's absolutely right. Well, again, he he comes from the Rays organization, so his opinions towards uh, backing up the Rays and where the Rays are as an organization. Why would you want? one of your best executives taken away from your team because your exec- your executive got fired because he was cheating. Right. So and the nobody Red Sox did the same thing now. Yeah, with nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that. And and I do believe that that's why he's upset about it. And I'm upset about it as a as a Yankee fan because if it was the Yankees or even the Red Sox, I think the the Red Sox are going to be slammed even harder than the Astros did I think because they could be too if they use the whole replay room. Yeah, <laughs> that's so more technology. And I, I do believe the reason why Rob Manfred is not coming out with anything is because it is bad and he is going to hit the Red Sox pretty bad. And this would be a big story and the Red Sox are one of the big teams right now in the major leagues, one of the most popular teams in the major leagues and if this comes out, it could really put a not only a hex of where the season is right now because we don't even know if we're going to have a season right. but now that's the top story it was the Astros it's died down the Astros story is dying down and everybody is looking forward to hearing what he has found out with this whole investigation with the Boston Red Sox I want to know what he's figured out and found out with the Red Sox organization because it must have been really really big because Alex Cora got fired so, and I, I don't think it had anything to do with the Astros on why Alex Cora got fired. I think it has a lot more in depth uh, behind the Red Sox situation than we even know. And I think we're going to find out when season when the season starts. Well, so. Cora is the mutual to every uh, to both sides. But again, you well, also- so was Beltran. They said Beltran was the mastermind of doing what they right, did. But on the Beltran bench. wasn't no, he was the a player. Red Sox, but still. He no, was he a was a player on the Astros. I know. I'm just saying. I'm saying with the Red but Sox. But he was a mastermind. How did Alex Cora learn that? He learned no, it from Beltran. No, it's possible. But still, the Red Sox are also again just one of the richest organizations where they can spend more on that on that technology if they had it available. Maybe they had a second replay room that nobody knows about if they indeed use the replay room to do that. And also, you're dealing with more parts on the field too, where you can get camera angles from different spots too. There's a lot of technology in there that allows you to do it between audio and video to be able to enhance it even further. And if they indeed use used the entirety of the replay room and had more executives that weren't maybe part of the team or part of the game do it, they could be hit harder for sure. If it's the same, maybe it's a comparative thing. They might, again, they might give them the same punishment. We'll see. But again, this could be definitely worse for sure. And I will have to say something about Andrew Freed. Andrew Freed, I disagree. Uh, I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, and he will be inducted into the Hall of Fame when he dies. But I think if baseball isn't going to do anything to the Houston Astros – I was waiting for him to say, well, then then Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. But he disagrees. He thinks Pete Rose should never see the Hall of Fame ever. He thinks he, he wants cheated baseball. To the game. He, he, he thinks that they cheated baseball. He, he even said Barry Bonds. I was very surprised. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, two players that before they did steroids, and we don't know when they started steroids, but you can kind of see their body structure change when they moved on with Roger Clemens going to the Blue Jays and – uh, Barry Bonds going to San Francisco Giants. Mm-hmm. You could see the difference in their body tone. I, I believe Barry Bonds started doing steroids in uh, his San Francisco day, but he still had 400 home runs and 400 stolen bases. That guy's a Hall of Famer. And Roger Clemens, before he started breaking down and going to the Blue Jays and the Yankees, he still was a Hall of Fame pitcher. He had the most strikeouts for a right-handed pitcher. I mean, if you look at what he has done over the years as a Boston Red Sox, 
I still believe Roger Clemens belongs in the Hall of Fame, as well as I think Alex Rodriguez belongs in the Hall of Fame as well. But there are people, there are analysts, and he votes. He gets the vote. He's a play-by-play guy, and uh, he gets the vote on who he thinks should go to the Hall of Fame. He's got a vote. And obviously he didn't vote for Barry Bonds in any of those guys. So obviously our thoughts right now, as long as he's voting, they're not getting in. So... Uh, again, it's very interesting when you talk to these analysts and these play-by-play guys because they work with those teams, they work in baseball, and they get to see these players play year in and year out. And his thoughts to people that did steroids, even his thoughts with the juice baseballs were very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was he, he stole my question with the Houston Nationals, so I had to come up with a question to, to kind of like move into uh, a baseball question because I was unsure what the next question was that I can ask him and. It just popped in my head, juice balls, and I wanted to hear his his uh, you know his insight of what some of the players on the Tampa Bay Rays thought of the juice balls and really how it changed baseball last year and the baseball season. Another viewpoint to argue rather than you and I arguing that again for the tenth time. <laughs> yeah, which which he gave us a good insight, and he 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 went back and forth. Uh, he said the the seams are different in ma- in the major leagues, and the seams were different this year with the baseball. That is which, interesting. I never knew that either. So. Well, he obviously talks to the pitchers, and the pitchers are going to tell him everything. Blake Snell, Blake Snell is one of the best dominant left-handed pitchers in baseball. So mm-hmm. if he's if he's having problems gripping the ball, then he's telling you that the seams are completely different. Well, then it's harder to to get the ball where you want it to go. It's pretty simple. The seams are the most important part of throwing a baseball, especially for a pitcher, yeah. because it makes the ball bend, turn, wherever, however way they want to drop the ball or break the ball. So. Uh, it's it's very interesting. I thought it was a great interview. Andrew Freed was a great interview, and so is Roxy Bernstein. Two mm-hmm. educated guys, very analytical on what they were saying, and and precise. And they didn't beat around the bush. They pretty much told you straight up. Unlike some of the people we've interviewed over the last couple of weeks, so um, I, I I was very intrigued. Kevin Ray was a great interview. There were a couple of great great interviews that we've had. These play by play, and we have mm-hmm. much much more uh, to come. We have a couple of play by plays. We have the Miami uh, Heat play by play guy at seven o'clock before our draft party show uh, for the NFL. He will be joining us on Thursday. And who else do we have? Tomorrow we have the Twins radio play by play announcer Corey Provis at right at the start of the show, and then. 7 o'clock, we have the Pirates. He did, switches off between both TV and radio. Pirates play-by-play announcer Greg Brown tomorrow. So we, we get the insight of all these play-by-play guys throughout the league. We've interviewed guys from the Cowboys, uh, from all different sports, from all different genres of baseball, basketball, football, hockey. Uh, it's, it's incredible when we're, we're talking to these play-by-play guys, and they're giving us the insight of what, as analysts on our show, how we analytically try to argue points uh, with our, each other. And we're giving them the, our points that we argued over the last couple of weeks, years, to them, and they're giving us their insight. So it, it was a great two interviews today for Roxy Bernstein and Andrew Freed. I'd like to thank them for joining us. I'd like to thank, uh, yes, Crazy Kenny for joining us <laughs> from Upstate White Plains. And Speedy not screwing up as much, but I have no idea why Speedy went to a quick break. I had to, and I want to. I want to give a shout out to all the fans out there that I did have to step out on the show. Um, there, COVID nineteen is is been really really bad over here in Long Island, especially here in Wisconsin. And I want to give a shout out to the Nesco Fire Department. Uh, people that work their butts off, they go to all these calls, all these COVID calls, and I was actually on a, a Zoom call. 
for COVID-19. And uh, I want to give a shout out to all my chiefs, my captains, my lieutenants, uh, all the people that are on the front line putting their lives on the lines, their families on the lines, and helping out the community. So all essential shout out. workers, uh, anyone working in a hospital, anyone working in I'm do, I do both. Yeah. I do both. Mm-hmm. I work at a hospital. During the day, I work at a fire department. I'm a, a volunteer firefighter, and uh, we do the radio station. And I want to give a shout-out to Ryan Hickey. Great show today. Ryan had a great, great show today. Check out Ryan Hickey. Go check out his Twitter. Go out his Instagram. Go check out his show, uh, The Morning Boys. Yeah, Brett great McMurphy great on today. Yes. College, college Football Insider. So uh, oh, yes. great, great show mm-hmm. by Ryan Hickey. And uh, we're actually talking about combining shows once a month and doing something together, me and Ryan. So Ooh. that's something that I think the fans will love. If me and Rick, uh, me and Ryan, almost I said Ricky. <laughs> shout out to, by the way, shout out to Ricky and Jillian, our two social media people that have worked their butts off day in and day out, posting up all our designs, all our posts, all of our social media. They put so much time into the work that they do. And shout out to all our new writers from Brad, Brian, Mike. Anthony, Dante, all of them, all our new writers. We have about seven or eight new writers. Go check out their stories, their blogs on our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. We have our app is on Android right now. If you want to download our app, if you have an Android, all you got to do is go to WWSRN underscore radio. um, Or you could do this. Go to Worldwide Sports Radio Network on the Play Store, and you can find us. That's probably the easiest way to find us, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And you'll see our app. It's free. Download it. Then you can listen to us free. You can watch us free. You can listen to all our clips, all our um, our podcasts. After our shows are completely done live, we have the podcast section, so you can watch all the re- or listen to all our replays of our shows. So it's a great tool, and it's going to be easy for all our fans to get in touch with us and interact with us and our writers. So uh, I'm very excited. It's on Android. iOS will be up uh, probably in the next week or two. So uh, shout out to John Garcia and uh, the company that designed our app and our website, by the way. Anyways, that's it for our show, ladies and gentlemen. We will be back tomorrow. Like you said, we have the Minnesota Twins play-by-play guy. Uh, what's his name? Corey Provis. Corey Provis. And who's the other guy we have? The Pirates play-by-play announcer, Greg Brown. Well, thank you, Speedy. You should have just said that instead of me asking you to say it. But uh, Speedy's in his own little world. That's just Speedy's world. Maybe uh, soon enough he'll be in Walmart signing uh, his autographs with his uh, Uh. new and improved tool. So definitely go out to Walmart near you in the next couple of months. He'll be signing his autographs to his new vibrator. So stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's a beautiful beautiful, uh, tool that not only women but men could use as well. Anyways, that's it for our show. That's it for our show, ladies and gentlemen. Until tomorrow, this is Errol Mark, Speedy Petey, and Down to the Wire saying good night, and we'll talk to you then. Good night, everybody. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.